welcome to ADI Ahmedabad uh, Tete Tete. This is the second in the series that we've uh, started uh, since last month. And our guest today is Akshay Gupta. If you've read about him, uh, we've been uh, you know, sending out all these messages that he's a car racer and a lot of other things as well. Very, very young. And uh, that's nice because a lot of new young people need to introduce themselves to bigger world and let them know what innovation is taking place in the country. So Akshay, uh, most of us, uh, uh, if we've had parents who owned cars, have started our relationship with a car as babies because our parents would drive us around you know, to put us to sleep. That's the typical yeah. way our relationship with cars start. How did yours start? <laughs> it's uh, kind of similar, but not similar. So I'll uh, speak about it. And first of all, thank you for having me here. I think I was two when I wouldn't stop crying until and unless I was put in the car every morning and the driver drove me around. So I would wake up with the sound of the engine every morning and I won't stop crying until I was placed in the car and I was given a joyride in the car. And I think even before that, I was just playing with toy cars. And when I got, when I was four years old, I, my dad saw the love for car, right? One day he went to, so we were in a small town in uh, Rajasthan. He went to uh, some work trip and he got back a go-kart go for me. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was it. That, that is, that is all I did all my day. I just drove that go-kart around on the hills of Rajasthan. So we, uh, house was almost on a hill. And just driving it around down uh, downhill at a high speed is all I did all day. That's how my love for car began. I just was in love with cars ever since I can remember. So, because you're mentioning this, this reminds me of my own childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always owned a red car. And okay. in my childhood, I had one of those pedal cars. Uh -huh. It's also red. Now yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's very... Likewise, my car was red. Yeah, is I that is that where the inspiration for the ADI logo comes from? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you started racing at a very young age, and um, what kind of training did you do to become a car racer? Uh, quite honestly, nothing. Uh, like if you ask me if I went through professional training, no. But uh, because uh, I was fortunate that there was a karting track at that time in Ahmedabad, right? It was at red carpet. Mm -hmm. So all I used to do is just go there, go down there every weekend and drive. That's all the training I ever had, like misdirected training where I was just driving and figuring out how to get faster around the racetrack every single lap, right? Uh, and when I got older, I think when Toyota selected me, they had Japanese racers who had come down. Uh, and they were training us. And this was not just, you know, uh, your driving training, but it was physical training, mental training as well. And even media training, how to represent yourself in the media and all that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What kind yeah, of so it, yeah, it was quite fun. So uh, we were meant to go around and finish a course uh, around the track in terms of planning or doing some physical activity to assess our fitness levels, right? And then we were given, handed out uh, detailed plan as to how we can improve our fitness levels to get faster in the car. Now, people don't realize this, how much it takes to, you know, uh, physically be fit to be able to drive a race car. But just to give you some context, uh, Formula One drivers, and I'm a Formula One driver, but Formula One drivers lose about three kgs of water weight when they go into a race. So when they come out of the race, they lose three kgs in water weight alone. So imagine how much running you have to do to lose that sort of water weight. 
it's insane amount of uh, cardio if you may right because your heart rate is high you're doing physical activity you have to put 80 kgs of force on the pedal to be able to take the car uh, you have to uh, sustain g forces of 5 6 g even in a formula 1 car in our cars it was relatively low i think the didn't do a lot of studies the the formula cars that we used to race yeah so the faster cars are the formula cars and those cars would pull about 2 and a half g at max right and that was also a lot physically so it was raining physically so you have to train a lot physically train your core core muscles uh train in terms of doing a lot of cardio and train in terms of mentally being stronger i think for most of the sports the mental aspect is neglected and that is the biggest aspect if you ask me right uh if you have another driver who you're trying to overtake uh mentally even before you're trying to overtake them you'll have them you'll have them when you try to overtake them so that that is a much bigger aspect of uh racing which is neglected by most people i think mental strength is of too much importance over there yeah. so, so do they also train you for failure in that sense mm mm-hmm. not really no one taught us like that no one trained us like that to be honest uh not for failure uh, mental strength as a whole it was just a perspective of uh, in terms of toyota the training was just a perspective of how you can recognize your strengths and then just focus on them rather than uh, you know uh, understanding how to capture the other the competent mind as a whole to take advantage of that 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 was not that but yeah a uh, lot of the training was in terms of your rigor how do you build that how do you build that attitude and what kind work? of commitment do you have to have for you know a sport like this uh, everything everything like you have to that's all you do all your life right because uh it takes your fitness levels to be at the peak uh and most of the time people like me at least who don't come from money we have to find money so we have to find sponsors so the business of the sport was more attractive at some times for me because 90% of my time was spent in trying to you know find sponsors to be able to continue racing so uh, i would go on meetings and uh, i think i have a record of how many meetings i went to in the peak year it was 2014 i was also doing a job as a journalist and uh, for a car magazine only and uh, simultaneously i think i went to some 60 odd meetings over a period of 3 to 4 months to be able to bag sponsorship and this is after like thousands of mails and phone calls right that you bag 50 odd meetings and then you uh, you will be able to translate one or two of them into your sponsors that you can race with so the entire business aspect of it is also neglected it's a massive thing because you need a lot of money to race because these cars are prototype cars and they need a uh, special tire special fuel special parts which are made in very low quantity so it's the most expensive sport in the world and uh, 90% of the time is spent like this and then training mentally physically and on the simulator so uh, you you kind of give up on all the other fun things that keep you awake yeah yeah I think nine years I didn't take a vacation. Wow! <laughs> Because I was just focused on this. So it, ready for a... your first vacation after that? <laughs> it was last year. It was 2019. The first place I went was in the woods, uh, the national park, Velavada National Park, and this was a gift from my friends, okay. uh, who sent me there, and I went alone. I just took books and just read it for three, four days. I call it a reading vacation. I decided I'll do it every year now. nice nice uh, so what did you do as a journalist how did you get into that uh, 
uh, line, right? Writing for an auto magazine at what age of uh, 14, 15, as you said? No, 19. This was 19. So I got into writing for a magazine uh, because it became a kind of a hobby to write about uh, motorsport in general. So I was writing about motorsport for several blogs. Right? And I recognized that, okay, that could be a very good means to promote my own career in racing. So since I can't get two-page articles into a magazine to speak about me, how about I go into that magazine and write about me, myself, right? My story of racing. And that will get me more sponsors. So that was my plain idea of, okay, this was the naive idea of getting into journalism. Uh, but it worked out quite well. And I took inspiration from this uh, ex-Formula 1 driver called Defnidel. So this guy uh, was a journalist and is a journalist to this day. He's a, a presenter for uh, a TV show, okay, uh, an automotive show. Okay. And simultaneously, he had a Formula One career. So he grew up the ranks with the assistance of his journalism career a lot. And I thought, okay, I can do the same thing. So I applied for the first job and this was my first application for the job, uh, for any job. And I got it. So it started off as an internship and it got really, really interesting, right? Because all you have to do is test cars, write about them, go to motorsport events and just enjoy the event, write about them as well. It was quite a fun thing to do. How did your parents take to all of this? Because uh, a lot of uh, the students here nowadays have issues, you know, mostly the parents yeah. make the decision about what you will study and where you will go and, you know, what your future should look like. So mm. this is an odd one for India. It's definitely not one that is doctor, engineer, uh, that kind of thing. It is mm-hmm. a new uh, thing. So, how did your parents kind of go and do this? So, yeah. So, uh, there are two aspects to that. One, I've been very stubborn as a kid. Second, I've had really good parents. <laughs> so, and I, I was raised in an unconventional family as such. Like, if you look at the uh, convention, how the society is, in that aspect, it's an unconventional family because my mother was a businesswoman. And my father was a bank manager, right? So that is an unconventional thing. My mother was earning more than my father throughout her life, right? And uh, I grew up watching that. So nothing was uncommon for me. I could do anything, right? So my family supported me in that aspect. They were always worried about uh, the safety aspect of it at all. But I downplayed it for them a lot. So I used to say that uh, it's safer to drive a race car than a road car, which I believe to be true to a large extent, right? Because in Indian roads, there are 1.5 lakh people who die every year. And if you're in a car, you're much safer. But if you're on a two-wheeler or a bicycle or a pedestrian, it's the riskiest thing you can do. So it's much safer to drive a race car where there's a controlled environment, if you may. I kind of underplayed the uh, dangers like that and kind of never took them to the racetrack. So they didn't see how fast we actually go. <laughs> okay. Um... Let's come to your company. You started Kyoti and yeah. what was your uh, idea to do it? How did you kind of go about starting up? Because that's, you know, what everybody wants to know nowadays. How mm-hmm. do you start a startup? Where do you get your funding? What is the paperwork? But what was your idea that actually uh, kind of got you the money, etc., to do that? So uh, there are multiple things to this. So there's no one answer that why I started this company. If you, if I... Uh, that's the the honest answer to that but let me walk you through some of the thought process okay so one was that uh, I love computers so I love technology because my mother used to run the computers business okay she used to deal in technology and I grew up watching that 
and I grew up watching her run the business. So I love two aspects of it, which is that technology is something I love. I was coding when I was six, in sixth standard or seventh standard. I was coding in C. And by the time they started teaching it in school, I knew all of it. So I was showing off there and that got me attracted to it more. Like I could show off something, right? So, uh, and technology was one aspect and business was another thing. And as a bunya, it comes in my blood. Like I love finance. <laughs> I love finance a lot. And automobile is something I love a lot. So there's something I found which could combine all the three things I love, which is cars, technology, and business. This is one way of thinking. And I love doing, I've always said this thing clear in my head that I'll only do the things that I love doing. I'll not be getting distracted uh, by money or anything to be able to do things that I don't enjoy doing that much. So I've stuck to that for the longest of time. And uh, business is something I love, finance, I love strategy. Everything I do in this business, I love all of it. It's just, it's just too much fun, to be honest. This fourth aspect uh, and the completely side aspect of it was I started this company with a naive perspective of, you know, uh, bringing a change in the road safety environment, uh, the road safety situations in the country. Uh, I believe technology is a very good tool combined with some uh, really good business models to create road safety, uh, to create change in the society. And I was, of, I'm still of the firm opinion and I still to this date uh, run this business with the major goal being that, that we'll bring road safety change in the country, right? So uh, telematics as a tool is used in uh, the world of race car driving to recognize mistakes that you would make while driving the car. And that goes to the point that you can even pinpoint one centimeter of a mistake that you make while driving the car. And that could lead to a penalty that you'll have, okay, in the race. And I thought telematics can be used in the same aspect in the uh, larger perspective of the road cars and we could bring a change in the environment and you reward people for driving safer rather than punish people for driving unsafe and that's that's a better mechanism for bringing change than punishing people right so that that was the entire motive of starting this company pivoted many times uh, from the initial naive idea to a very solid idea that we have right now that we are working on and building and we are deploying in the market right now so what we essentially now do is we build a connected car technology stack. So when I speak about connected cars, it deals with vehicle to cloud communication, vehicle to vehicle communication and vehicle to infrastructure communication. Our focus area is vehicle to cloud communication for now, because vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure will take a long time to come. So we build a vehicle to cloud communication electronics, the firmware or the software on top of the electronics, the cloud, the AI, and then the front end for the consumers to uh, consume their vehicle in a way, right? So we make consumers life easy. We make, uh, we connect the consumer to all the stakeholders and the consumers cars to all the stakeholders. So our cars are now connected to your dealership, your garages, your uh, spare manufacturers, insurance company, finance company, and it makes everything much more efficient. And that's what we do. That way we build a connected car ecosystem. And uh, how does this, uh, is it, it's a gadget that is fitted into the car? So it comes in two models. Uh, one you can buy on Amazon or our own website on scouter.in. Okay. Uh, and the other one is, it goes inside the hood of the vehicle, which comes as a fitment that you can, uh, that some manufacturers are providing or some large players are providing in the industry. So we, we have both the variants. You can plug and play it. It takes 60 seconds to go. 
and now you have your vehicles data on your phone right you can in real time you have all of vehicles health data uh, location data uh, if there's an accident you'll know if the vehicle gets stored you'll know if it's parked and someone hits it you'll know what is the health of the vehicle in terms of the engine when it will run out what when do you need to service it'll keep reminding you of all of that makes your life entirely easy to own a car essentially and uh, how would this work i mean uh, do you plan to make it some uh, tie up with car companies to ensure that this kind of built in uh, yeah. fitment into a new uh, newly produced cars yeah, so a lot of the cars that you'll see right now, most of them have connected cars in some way or the other, right? And by 2025, I think 90% of all cars sold or rolling out of the assembly line will have connected cars. So uh, in some way or the other, right? And uh, gradually it'll just become a normal thing. And you'll have all the cars running on it. I was saying that by 2025, all the cars will come with connected cars in some way or the other. Uh, to some extent, even right now they have it. Gradually, we'll get into the uh, the OEM market that we call it, and then we'll tie up with car manufacturers. So now we are working with large-scale uh, used car dealers, new car dealers, insurance companies, finance companies, garage aggregators. So we are supplying a technology to all. And how, how how do they receive your idea? What do they say when you come come with this idea to them and say this is what we are doing? And because normally, you know, I, uh, bank managers, even if you go for a home loan at the age of 40, they look at you like, uh, are you serious? So when you are in your 20s and you go and say, I, am, I have this great idea and I'm going to do this, how do they look at you? Uh, a lot of it has changed, at least in the senior management. Uh, like when you speak to them and you uh, understand that they, they've already dabbled at some level with the technology that you're building and you're supplying to them. They just don't see sometimes, in terms of my particular technology, they don't see the feasibility of it in certain aspects, right? So my job as a business owner is to figure out how it can be feasible on a large scale. And it scales, right? It goes massive. And that's when my business owns, my stakeholders own, and everyone uh, in the entire ecosystem benefits. So, but these days, if you ask me, uh, the two funny responses I get. When I speak to them on the phone and then I schedule a meeting and I, now the meetings are not there, but when they used to be, uh, when I would walk into a meeting, they, they'll just, they'll usually be an expression of, okay, where's Akshay, <laughs> right? Because we didn't expect a, a, a young 20-ish looking person to come into the room. We were expecting someone much more mature. And then like in terms of the appearance and all, right, they expected some 40-year-old to come in. But uh, when when you get to talking about the industry and uh, when you get to discussing the entire industry and the proposition we have and the technology that we serve, it becomes easier after that. You just need to enter a conversation, that's all. Um, how many designers do, do you work with? How many of your team, how big, large is your team and how, how many of them are design background people? We are a really small team, if you ask me. We are 12 people, we are a startup. Uh, we've been building this for about two and a half, three years. Out of the 12 people, I think, uh, so three are in the design aspect. One leads it, and then there are two designers. And because we have a consumer-facing app where uh, the consumer has to interact with the vehicle at all times, right? And the services that we provide with the help of a lot of stakeholders. So uh, we have to focus on design a lot, right? We have to make the consumer's life easier in terms of uh, navigating through the app or uh, being able to buy something on the platform, book a service on the platform, 
uh, get uh, information. So there's so much data points that we collect out of the vehicle and to portray that data in a really positive manner uh, or uh, hassle-free manner, it's, it's quite a task. So these designers' job is particularly that. And uh, I, I dwell a lot into it. I'm usually undecisive, indecisive on the design aspect of things because there's so much I don't know on that side that I procrastinate that side a lot. And hence I leave it to the team to decide what's best for them, right? And how do you approach designers? I mean, uh, do you write to uh, uh, placement organizations in uh, design schools or uh, do you just put out an ad or it goes through your network? So uh, approaching in terms of, okay, hiring designers or yeah. getting them on board or working with them, right? Uh, I think it's a little bit of all of it. We'll try everything we can to be able to get the best minds to work with us. And uh, so the more uh, you increase your horizon of uh, people that you can interact with, the uh, easier it will be for you to narrow down to the people. We try a little bit of everything. Uh, normally, how many applications do you get? A lot. Like out of 300-ish, we'll select one. Okay. Yeah. And are you, do you look for people just around in Ahmedabad or is it a nationwide search or is it an international search? It's nationwide. Uh, for now, it's nationwide. And most of my team is remote right now. Everyone's working from their own hometowns right. all across the country. Okay. So in Ahmedabad, we only have five people. Okay. Yeah. And they also work remotely from their places. Do you think that uh, the kind of people you hire? Uh, mm -hmm. that they have the skill sets already on board or do you think that it needs a lot of discussion and you know looking more together to uh, be able to find uh, once you've hired somebody that you can actually get what you want out of them it, no I, I would say they don't have the entirety of skills that we would look for it's just growing as a company and growing as employees together so a company is nothing but its employees right and uh, we're just growing as a company and growing as employees together. Most of, as I mentioned, the average age in the team is about 26 or 25. We're very young people and uh, uh, everyone's learning on the job and experimenting. So the design process would usually look like we'll have one render and then we'll think, okay, if we can, where are all the places we can move this particular button to, okay? So just to give you a perspective of, let's say the app UX design that we are looking at or UI design we are looking at. And we'll sit and brainstorm on that for hours. And then we'll come up with one particular thing that we, we all enjoy a lot. Like this is this is working out, this sounds, this looks good. Someday later we'll think of something and then we'll realize, okay, that was a bad, bad idea. We'll go back on the drawing board, redo it, and then come back with it again. So it's all learning on the as a process while building it. That's that's what everyone's doing with a really young team. No one comes with a lot of experience. And what do your financiers think about that approach? Uh, their approach is not towards you know uh, what I do internally in the team as much. Uh, it is more as to what the outcome is. So as long as you you need to pay back right at some yeah first yeah, generate yeah. income. So yeah. there must be better that, for that as well. Yeah. So that's the goal of any company, right? Uh, I, I believe a company's core uh, goal is to create wealth for everyone. Yeah. Not just your employees, 
but your stakeholders in terms of your investors, but also the vendors that you're interacting with and the nation as a whole and for yourself, right? So everyone, you're just generating wealth for everyone. And it's a, uh, it's not, if you look at game theory, it's not a zero sum game. Everyone wins at the end of the day, right? So uh, how we look at it is that they give us the freedom when they invest. And I, I take care of this as to who's investing into the company as well. You have to, it's like, it's like a marriage of everything, right? So you have to ensure that the person is uh, well aligned with your ethics, with your uh, thought process, with the vision of the company. And then only they come into the uh, investor's pool. While simultaneously, if you look at internally how we operate, it doesn't influence as much until unless we're meeting the goals that we wish to. Right. So if we are not, it it'll just be a conversation about okay, what do you think is going on? Where are we not meeting? What? Uh, why are we not meeting these goals? And why? Where is everything or anything going on? So it's just a conversation, not as much as to the process of how we do it. And how much time would you like to kind of uh, you know make it? Is is all of you must be having some moment that you say okay, we give this five years. And then mm -hmm. have been, you know, uh, in the market at this level, or then mm -hmm. kind of say, okay, we've tried and we've done it, and mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, here's a perspective on that, and we are very different on that aspect. So there are a few things. The core team that we have, it's like family. So we all love working together and love doing what we do also. Okay, so that's one. Now why I'm saying that is because uh, a perspective to this is as a startup, you keep pivoting until you figure out what works best with the market and you call that product market fit. Once you attain product market fit, everything goes like a rocket ship from there on. That's, that's how startups function, right? Uh, our perspective is that we keep pivoting. Something works out or not because we all love doing what we do. There's no, uh, deadline. We keep to this. We'll do it as long as it takes. Right? We, we just love doing this. We love building things. Uh, we enjoy each other's company and while building things. So the core team is married to not just the idea, but the company. And our vision is to just build whatever we uh, love building and building wealth for the nation or building wealth for everyone, every stakeholder. That's what we do. How did you come about this name? Why did you select this name? Which of course, 90% <laughs> of India cannot, uh, you know. Yeah, so it, it's... Is a company name, so it doesn't come up that much. Uh, the brand names are different. The brand names, we have two brand names. One is a customer-centric brand name, which is called Scouto. And then there's a uh, B2B brand name, which is called Wheel Intel, right? So uh, these are two brand names that we have. The company name, uh, I'm really bad at naming things. It took me a long time. But my idea was that uh, we are delusional in a way that we we're trying to accomplish something which is really tough. If you look at the road safety situations in India, it's a very delusional thing to think that, okay, a bunch of 10 or 15 or 20 idealistic people can sit together, work on something, build something and change that. So uh, we're delusional with that, but, and that so was Don Quixote, right? And this stuck to me since, ever since I read it in school, uh, during the school days, we had it in the course, the English literature course, right? And ever since then, it stuck to me because some, somewhere it, it hit me a little, that story, uh, and could relate a lot in terms of, uh, when I was pursuing racing as a career as well, I was delusional to think that a son of a bank manager could, uh, get into racing and maybe get, get to formula one one day, right? Because, 
it's not doable if i if i go back and look at the 14 year old me who wanted to race and uh, he came to me to ask about okay should i do it i'll say no it's it's very delusional to think you can do it so i got this far because i just you do it because you don't know it cannot be done right? so you just go ahead and try try doing it so there's a lot of similarities in terms of what uh, don qt was trying mr qt was trying to do and uh, a lot of what we do is like hence the name like we are uh, that that tenacity to just keep driving towards something that you believe in uh, needs to be ingrained into the team and we work like that so just that's the entire idea of doing this so what other interests do you have i you did mention uh, when we were talking earlier that uh, you look for people who have a broad spectrum of interests but yeah. what are your interests other interests than your let's say your company and racing a lot of it like i'm curious about everything so i read about everything uh, i go broad into fields i won't go deep into fields but uh, broadly i've explored a lot of philosophy a lot of psychology uh, i love political sciences a lot i love art a lot uh, don't understand most of it but <laughs> beginning to literature uh, i enjoy literature a lot uh just just the world the way we are science technology as a whole businesses uh i invest in companies in the uh, public market so i love studying businesses there as well uh, i set this goal at the beginning of 20 mid mid 2019 that i'll study each and every company in the stock market right now which is about 3800 companies so i set this goal i think i've come to about 1000 till now so <laughs> but i love doing that as well so i have a lot of broad in- interest areas uh, i think uh, lately psychology has been uh, one of my key areas because that helps me run a company really well is nothing but the in- people at the end of the day and how you can get them together and manage them really well so we have a question here how do you suggest the younger generation can be encouraged and inspired to push their choices towards more innovative and interdisciplinary careers okay uh, i would say just try towards your curiosity be curious a lot read a lot explore more things explore as much as you can uh, innovation is just it it happens by chance when you're just trying to do something you enjoy doing or exploring your curiosities a lot and innovation happens by chance you just uh, the, the curiosity is what drives it so i just would say that be curious learn as much as you can about the world every time something pops up just ask the question how or why right why is this so how did it come here how are we so how, why do we do these things so there's this concept called uh, first principles thinking right uh, which is that there's a there's a differentiation between a chef and a cook a chef is someone who understands uh, the core ingredients that go into the uh, food and knows the difference of the food and hence the chef can make the dish out of variety of ingredients while a cook will just follow a recipe and say that okay let's put it all together both of them can make food but the one which has the core first principles clear will be able to do it much better for a broader set of things right and that's that's what what is necessary in a at a young age to understand that what you need to do is just build your first principle thinking right and elon musk promotes this a lot uh he just looks at things at uh, from a first principle point of view and says that uh, it's it's very simple to uh, 
solve most of the problem in the world if you divide it into some really abstract set of you know simple ideas okay these are the problems and why are they the problems and how can you solve them so it's as simple as that but yeah just explore your first principles keep your curiosity and keep exploring more and more things so prajwal has a question as well i want to know if you feel any connection in the topics of your interest that to be philosophy psychology science technology and art particularly as art helped you in any way okay so the question is that uh, the person wants to know whether out of all these fields art has helped me in any way is that so uh, yes it is but actually uh, i want to know do you feel any connection in between the topics that uh, throughout the journey helped you mm okay so here's the thing now uh, when i look at most of art it's a it's a mixture of a lot of things right so let me give you a few examples now uh, you look at musicians uh, a musician is just someone who's uh, from a psychological standpoint very okay to be vulnerable in front of a map mass right when they write music and they are exp- uh, they are expressing their heart and soul into uh, into that music or whatever they are writing okay poets do the same thing writers do the same thing they are vulnerable to the masses they expressing themselves to the masses in a lot of ways now that is expressing themselves to an art form but there's psychology attached to it right and uh, to be able to have the capacity to express yourself in that way uh, to understand that uh, there's a correlation between uh, what happened throughout your uh life that led you to this person who's uh very very easily uh, not easily has the capacity to do it right so the the thing i focus on a lot is building mental models out of things and if you look at art is a culmination of your mental models any form of art so you are correlating so many things together mental models are essentially your uh building blocks of your brain how how you correlate things here and there and any sort any sort of art form when you practice it it's just a culmination of all your mental models together okay and when you look at a business it's an art because there's no hard answers to everything you can know how to uh, to how to do business how to run a business to anyone because there's so much subjectivity that everything changes at every single point okay so at the end of the day even business is an art and uh, it's just a culmination of your mental models together so uh, it's the same as art for anything and that's how i think of art as a whole and then studying different sorts of art helps me build my own mental models to be able to apply them to my business so uh, you mentioned that you started all this because you were worried about the safety on the road for regular drivers right yep. and uh, have was there an event in in your life or in around you that caused this to kind of be triggered not not just one but many so uh sadly there's been more race car drivers who died on public roads than on the race track and then uh very long ago i lost my cousin also in a uh, bike accident right so that at that point i thought that there needs to be something that can be done about this something right because uh, you can't have years of people dying before the society as a whole gradually figures out uh, how to do it safe how to do it better because us as a society are nothing but uh, it, it's all chaos right it is trying to figure out how to do things everyone's trying to figure out how to do things 
and in that process we do make mistakes we do form uh, government systems which are bad uh, and we live with them we gradually correct them and all of that but this is not something uh, that can be let go on uh, just the process of you know evolving over time you have to intervene and you have to accelerate the process of road safety because it's been done in the western world in a lot of ways why can't it be done here in a better manner with the use of technology because a lot of things that have been implemented in the western world do not work here but a modification of it in a large way will work here you just have to figure out answers for the uh, country that we have which is a very complex country as a whole uh, and look at various ways that you can uh, solve particular issues with with that perspective in mind so that's that's what i thought of yeah so i used to also train for traffic uh, safety many many years ago and for many many years one of the things i always told people is that you know when we were driving bullock carts and horse carriages you never mm-hmm. heard of really because yeah. no horse in his right mind will run into another horse just for the fun of it right yeah 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 so uh, the problem is that now it's us who are the dummies sitting behind the machine and thinking that we can you know uh, be safe Mm. pressing the pedal um so i think that thinking what you're saying that the psychology part of it is a very very important part probably you should look at what animals think then on safety because mm. they kept us safer than we have ourselves yeah yeah i often ask this question is the red light or the amber light safer <laughs> okay yeah and usually people will say it's the red light but it's not uh i mean the red light is a definitive you are likely to you will have an accident if you cross this point yeah the amber is telling that you could or you could not so mm. it's more dangerous actually because it's throwing the ball in your court and leaving your mm. judgment whereas the red is just definitely telling you that i know for sure if you cross this you're going to die yep yep, so, yep. So, the amber and the yellow marking on the road whenever you see mm-hmm. is the warning that you have to be most careful so governments can make you know the process uh, safer for you by putting mm-hmm. like signage and the markings etc mm-hmm. car companies have made cars safer yeah as much as they possibly could and with your added uh, technology in it probably even more safer but how will we change this because I this think... is the one that is not changing with everything you know we still uh... they're invincible we go at a, uh, at 200 kilometers an hour on our highway and don't know how to brake we don't know that if we don't put our safety belt on the mm-hmm. airbag is not going to pop up right mm-hmm. so there's still so much of this general basic knowledge that is missing in in the public i think uh, there is a famous race car driver who once said that uh, this is john Ma- Ma- manuel fangio and you said that i'm not scared of driving at on on the race track i'm scared of driving on public roads when some idiot crosses me and thinks he's hand you yeah <laughs> <laughs> because you can't control that car in that particular manner on public roads because there's so many different scenarios that can go wrong now i'm a proponent of autonomous cars i look forward to that happening because i see two things over there uh, one is that save millions of lives okay uh, uh to its a 
very very difficult challenge to solve uh, i think that like yeah so it's a very very difficult challenge to solve to give you a perspective of how difficult a challenge it is to solve uh, rocket scientists are leaving their industries to get into autonomous car industry because they find it to be a bigger challenge to solve okay because they say that the, when you fly rockets there's no dog that will run in the way but when you go on the public road there'll be a dog which will run on the way and how do you solve that problem in terms of computer science in terms of ai and that's a very complex problem to solve that a lot of people the brightest of minds in the world are right now working on it so that's a technological challenge that attracts me that's one the saving of lives that attracts me but the third biggest thing is what will do to the racing industry that attracts me even more okay for the longest of time i used to think that it will destroy the racing industry completely there'll be no race cars left there'll be no one racing cars but then i changed my perspective completely one one day when i saw horses on the street so horses were earlier the mode of transportation it's funny most people don't know this but horses were uh, taken out of the mode of transportation because the world thought and there was a conference meeting a special emergency conference meeting set up somewhere in us uh, because the world thought that because of horses there'll be so much pollution that will destroy the world okay so the dung that was left by the horses on the road that was considered to be pollution and you were sending more horses to pick up that dung <laughs> so that was the emergency meeting and then that translated into the ic engines that we now know which are polluting the world at a very rapid pace but uh, also speeding up the process of development of the world as a whole right now autonomous cars when they come in it'll do the same thing to race car driving as it did to uh, horse racing as an industry it'll glorify that so motorsport will be a glorified sport at the end of the day of the i think the recent famous thing like it is right now as well uh when the autonomous cars come in and the roads will be much more safer you can drive as fast as you want in a race in a race car on a race track and then you can go back home safely not having to risk your life while you are driving on the street as well so that's what i look forward to in terms of uh, the road safety situation eventually it will happen how to change the psychology of the people right now is to reward them for driving safer rather than punishing them for driving unsafe because how much can you control there's so much chaos in the on the roads that you can't catch everyone possibly you can't put infrastructure in place you can't put people in place because they're not that rich a country yet so how do you reward people well or drive well so in our in our uh, technology platform we are coming up with something which lets you uh, accomplish tasks so drive below this particular speed for the next 100 200 kilometers and you'll get a free reward and these are driven by csr initiatives uh, that's one way your insurance premium goes down drastically if you drive safer your insurance premium goes down drastically it doesn't go up if you drive in a reckless manner it'll remain at the top of what it is right now if you drive safer it can go go down to up to 50% of what it is wow okay That's and it's incentive yeah and it's already there in the western market in the western markets your insurance premium is not dependent on which vehicle you have but it's how you drive your vehicle and how much you drive your vehicle so that determines your risk and the underwriting is done like that in india it's not there because the business model doesn't allow it you can't put a 3000 rupee device into a car for every insurance premium that they buy uh when the insurance premium in itself is 15 to 20000 rupee and then give them a 50% discount on top of it 
So what is the insurance company left with? Huh? So the business model were not allowing it, and that's where the penetration of the technology was about one two percent. Uh, for it to bring a mass change, the penetration has to go to ninety percent. That's where we come in and we say that we will come up with innovative business model that allows you to have ninety percent penetration of the technology and then bring a mass change in this. So soon, when sooner or later you'll see connected cars everywhere. And my my hope is that it's us who's doing it in a way that we make it safer for the entire country to drive the cars. So there's one more question from the audience. What do you think about Tesla's self-driving feature? Because there are many videos that it has avoided number of accidents on road in Western yeah. world. Will yeah. it work in Indian traffic as well? Uh, once, so there are levels of autonomy, right? Uh, autonomous cars have five levels. Level zero is your driver driving it. Level one is some level of autonomy, like it'll brake on its own and all of that. Level two is even more where it it can drive on its own in the highway. With some particular uh, uh, intervention or uh, looking after it, but when you get into level three, it can, it gets much more complex. So where Tesla is at right now is level three of autonomy. They're not fully autonomous. No one in the world has done full autonomy yet. Level five is the full autonomous vehicle. Level four is in between where the driver can just go away and uh, the vehicle is not fully autonomous also. So it's the dangerous aspect which no one is uh, playing around with. But level five is where everyone wants to reach, and if you ask me, there are a couple of players in the industry who are very close to that. So once they get to level five, once the AI has been trained enough and the network, the data, there's enough data to train them enough, uh, it won't be that difficult. So it's like, it's like a, a hockey stick graph, right? It just it accelerates like this. Once the data has reached a particular inflection point, then just Skyrockets from there on. So we just we we already have the electronics and the hardware necessary to do fully self-driving cars. The computer science, the computers are there. The processing power is there. We don't have we don't have the trained AI right now. But when it comes, I think it's the best thing that can happen because uh, even even with like uh, so the the kind of fatality rate that you can have with self-driving vehicles all throughout. Uh, will be ninety nine percent less than what we have right now. So it, I'm not saying it'll be bulletproof. I don't think it'll be. No one will tell you it'll be bulletproof. There'll still be fatalities, but it'll be ninety nine percent less than what we have right now. Because if you look at self driving cars as a whole, there's a perspective that uh, a self driving car will be better than ninety nine percent of the drivers. There'll be one percent of the drivers who are maybe race car drivers who will be much better than them at driving that particular vehicle. But ninety-nine percent of the vehicles will be uh, better than drivers, human drivers as a whole. That's that's my viewpoint on that. Years ago, when I was uh, heading the Dutch office here, um, mm -hmm. we uh, talked about in our traffic group about a bus that was developed in Eindhoven city called Phileas. Similarly, okay. like Phileas Fog going around the world, they had this bus that was self-driving. Uh, uh, so Phileas uh, actually was self-driving, but what they had done is that they had embedded magnets into the road and okay. the bus followed the track accordingly. But uh, yes, it, it had a lot of... Uh, so this was also a student project where mm -hmm. students uh, at the university were uh, you know, thinking and building this thing, but it actually works. And I just had known about it, etc. But one day while I was having breakfast in Eindhoven and suddenly the Phileas 
passed by, I was like jumping in my chair and the rest of the restaurant was looking at me, what's wrong with this woman? Phileas, <laughs> 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 Nice, yeah. I think I'll have the same excitement if I see a not now car go by. Yeah. Or if I sit in one and I'll be like, oh, it's driving on its own now. No, it, it, I mean, auto, autonomous car is like sitting next to a driver and, uh, you know, still some, I'm sure that like many of us who drive, we mm. will automatically start pedaling with our feet at least if we are not using our hands, but our feet yeah. you know, automatically go for the brake at times. Yeah. And this, like, this weird guy who doesn't let anyone drive if it's on a road trip, I won't, I'm always on the driver's seat. I can't let other people drive. Like, I've just come back from a long, long drive uh, yeah. across the state and uh, my friend has been very upset with me that I never allowed him. So once when I was <laughs> online taking class, he took my keys and went off <laughs> to buy something and said, ah, I drove your car. <laughs> but as you know, I've shifted from also uh, the race model of the Accent, uh, the Viva, to yeah. a, a granny car as I call it, the I-10. Uh, okay. But uh, this trip actually allowed me to uh, kind of find the spirit of my car and be kind of merged like I used to with my old car. Nice. Uh, so I, I believe that car definitely has its own spirit. Yep. And yep. We kind of become one. I name my cars, I talk to them. <laughs> all my cars actually are red and all of them are number 64. Okay. Yeah, so, so you quite love cars. Right? I know, yeah. I know from the first interactions also that you quite love cars. Yeah. So uh, in Ahmedabad, I think most people know that if it's a red car and it's number sixty-four, that's Gaudi. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I think uh, that brings us close to the hour. There's one more question um, from Tanvi, and that is, what do you enjoy being the most, a sportsman or an entrepreneur? What is the biggest difference for you? Mm, that's an interesting question. So, uh, I never thought I'd fell in love with entrepreneurship as much as I have right now. But if you ask me really, uh, it's a sport that I love a lot more. For various reasons, uh, in entrepreneurship, there's a lot more out of your control in, in the sport. Right? <laughs> and if you're good, you'll succeed. If you're not, you won't. Right? In the world of sports, it's and you know that the number of parameters that are out of your control are limited and you know them all. Whereas in entrepreneurship, there, there's so much out of your control, right? And it's just uh, working around chaos in a way. So uh, plus the, the, it's an up and down journey. Whereas you know that every single time you get into a race car, there'll be happiness. In entrepreneurship, it's like today it's too happy, tomorrow it's too sad. It's an up and down journey and it's not constant all throughout. You have to pull yourself back together and be like, okay, you have to get, get this done. Every single day you have to get, get yourself to pull yourself uh, back into place and get whatever is to be done to be done. Right. Uh, whereas in the sport, it wasn't the case. So there, the motivations of doing it were much higher and the, uh, this, the feeling of happiness while doing it was much more, the rewards were much more, uh, it would give you instant rewards if you were good. It'll, either you'll win the race or you won't. Here, it's long run. You won't know whether you're doing something right or wrong until it all fails together, right? 
I could be someone who's just doing everything absolutely wrong, and I wouldn't know until it fails, and it will take years for me to know that. So that's that's the difference, and hence I enjoy the sport more. We have a similar thing, you know, the gentleman who uh, invented uh, fertilizer mm -hmm. recently apologized to the world for this big mistake that he made by introducing the world to chemical and artificial fertilizer. Interesting. Okay. And he's done the planet a huge harm by having. Mm -hmm. There's another question here. Uh, I want to know how much it is in your control till now, as you say, in your business front. Have you fared well or as you had expected, as it is said uh, that any business takes 1000 days? Okay. Uh, so it's already been 1000 days, already been about three years. And I think I failed in three businesses before this. It was really fast. There's this agile practice of failing fast to succeed fast. So you're failing really fast in those things. And we came to know, okay, this is not feasible, that is not feasible. For now, if you ask me how much is in my control, uh, since we are not at this rapid pace of development or uh, growth, I think it's still relatively more in control. Once we hit that inflection point, when I see that happen, uh, once we hit that inflection point, it scales fast from there on, then it'll be chaos, right? And uh, I've seen such startups that I deal with uh, in a way or two with we call it product market fit once you hit product market fit then it's uh, it's as if that uh, most things are not in your control and you have to live with that uncertainty and then manage it but uh, there's a saying in that aspect as well this is mr don valentine who coined it uh, of sequoia capital so he started sequoia and he he coined this term it's where he said that uh, when you hit product market fit uh, the customer you could you could do absolutely everything wrong but the customer will still steal the product out of your hands. That's product market fit. You have recognized the pain point that the customer has. You've solved it. And you could do absolutely everything else wrong as a company, but you'll still, you'll still grow at a rapid rate. If you do everything right, the, the possibility is endless. Okay. If you do everything wrong, still you'll grow. So that's product market fit. That's where the true chaos comes in. We are on the verge of, I believe, figuring that out. And once you do, uh, it does take thousand days as I've now explored. Over the last three years, I've been like, uh, I've been impatient in a lot of things because that's what my sport taught me. <laughs> Being impatient in a way to achieve what you want to because the, uh, there was no delayed gratification in the sport, it was instant. And that's what it taught you. And then you have to let go of that and understand it takes time. So what I learned throughout the process, it always takes more money than you think it will. And it'll always take more time than you think it will, which is a very common saying. So that's currently, I would say, still like 50% of it is in control. So we've uh, been talking for an hour. I think that, that brings us to all uh, our questions, I think, being answered. Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank the audience for joining in. Also for other nice questions that you guys raised and of course a big thank you for Akshay to have uh, agreed uh, I, I think we did this over one phone call and one uh, chance meeting at the bank <laughs> and uh, yeah. this has really been uh, something that I was looking forward to for a long long time because yeah, I thank you for having me right we met in February yeah. 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 and I was very very curious about 
uh, young man like this. Thank you all very much. We will be back uh, again next month with a new tete-a-tete. -tete. Hopefully, uh, one of my colleagues will uh, do it next time. And uh, we will have somebody as interesting and more uh, and more each month from here on. Thank you so much for being here. And thank uh, you for having me. Sorry. You all the best. EDI and all the questions. For all the questions here. And do connect with us uh, whenever you have the opportunity, when you're looking for somebody, maybe we can help you from sure. uh, many members that we have across the country. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. See you. Take care.